Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital or the firms of guests that appear on the podcast. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I do a show us your portfolio with Jason Buck of Mutiny Funds and co-host of the investing and financial podcast, Pirates of Finance. Jason walks us through the development of the Cockroach Portfolio, which is a strategy designed to produce returns in all different kinds of economic and investing environments. He explains how stocks, bonds, volatility, trend, gold, and even crypto can play a part in a portfolio built to weather any type of investing regime. Jason is full of knowledge and investors should enjoy this discussion. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Mutiny Fund's Jason Buck. This episode is brought to you by Alpha Architect for Advisors. Whether you're an established firm or just starting out, you know the right systems can be the difference maker to achieving your growth goals. That's why Alpha Architect now offers a suite of turnkey model portfolios that can be customized to fit your practice. Built on Alpha Architect's decades of rigorous academic research, our model portfolios aim to systematize portfolio management so that you can spend less time tinkering with funds and more time finding your next great client. Systemize today to save time tomorrow. That's building with conviction. That's Alpha Architect for advisors. To learn more about Alpha Architect's model portfolios and to schedule a consultation, visit advisors.alphaarchitect.com slash models. That's advisors, A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S dot alphaarchitect.com slash models. Alpha Architect for advisors, built with conviction. Hi, Jason. How are you? Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited to talk about portfolio construction. Yeah, we wanted to have you on on this Show Us Your Portfolio um, episode, which we've, we've done a bunch of these with different professionals in, in the industry, sort of talking about how they go about managing their own portfolios and I think what our audience can learn from some of these different and unique strategies. The one thing that I think is cool about what you've done is you, and we're going to get into all this, but there's a top-level philosophy that you believe in and have formulated in your mind about how to be successful in the markets over time. And then you've basically created an investment strategy that you're personally invested in, but you also invest outside clients in and investors in. So unlike some of the other episodes we've had where maybe the person we're talking to has ETFs and some, some maybe they hold some of their ETFs, but they do some other stuff. I mean, you're, you're really, um, the conversation today is going to be about the investment strategy you built for yourself that you have clients in and sort of what makes that unique. So that's going to be really great. Yeah, I'll have to give the, uh, the further disclaimer is like, I don't have any original ideas. You're going to hear me quote a lot of other people probably during this <laughs> conversation. I'm not sure any of us have original ideas, but we can at least combine them in unique ways. So excited to talk about it. Knowledge stacking. Yeah, exactly. Coin that term before Rodrigo does. So um, let's start. At, we, we, we always like to start these conversations with asking about what your biggest goals are when it comes to investing. I mean, what, what effectively are you trying to achieve with your investments? So at a very high level, I think we look at things a little bit differently than a lot of people do. Um, you know, a lot of people look at their investments as a way to get rich. And we feel like we're in the stay rich game. Um, to get rich, you need to take an enormous amount of concentrated risk, usually with a, you know, a business or a certain investment where you're going all in. And then you just hope you get lucky enough to amass some capital. But then you have to do a 180 degree turn to stay rich. 
And so when we construct portfolios, we're thinking about what's the way to potentially stay rich in no matter what macro environment we're in or kind of what the global economy kind of throws at you. So at a very top level, we're trying to have a really boring portfolio. I'm known for saying we build the least shitty portfolio. And what I mean by that is we're just focusing on robustness, where I feel like everybody else is trying to optimize to perfection. And by optimizing perfection, uh, a lot of times you don't even see where your risks potentially are. We're going to um, sort of get into because there's, there's a lot there. Um, yep. We're going to get into all that. But let's just sort of on the personal level with how you view the future of you and your investments. Um, we also like to ask this question about retirement. So and a lot of guys we've had on that are in the investment business, it's like everyone seems to say, you know, that they love what they do. Um, they want to do and work as long as they can and be productive. But how do you view your, I guess, longer term goals when it comes to retirement? Do you think you're going to like go to Florida and play golf or do you plan on doing something different or, or what, what do you think? Well, I think by by definition, the people that you usually have on this podcast are not people that are going to retire. So it's like a self-selection mechanism. Um, I'm probably in that camp as well. Uh, but it, de it depends on like how you define retirement. Like I have a really obsessive personality. And so, you know, right now, you know, I'm technically obsessed with portfolios and how do you stay wealthy? So that's what I'm focused on. But, you know, if that fades away, there'll be something else. Or if like, you know, if we sold their business, which I doubt is ever going to happen, but both my partner and I built build companies to sell them because that's the right way to build it. And then hopefully you never sell, but that's the way you build the processes and systems in place. Um, if I, I don't think I could ever retire. I've just have an infinite level of curiosity. And even if it's, you know, people think maybe retirement's reading books. I mean, I, I average probably a hundred, 150 books a year, uh, give or take now podcasts are taking up more time. So it might be down to like 50 books a year. So even then it would be a different obsession. I think maybe I think about retirement, too, in a sense of Bill Perkins that wrote um, Die With Zero. If you guys haven't read that, I highly recommend it just to give you to think about retirement or stages of your life in different ways. And, and just, just to summarize Bill Perkins' books about, you know, different decades of your life, right? Like most people think, oh, I'm going to amass all this wealth and I'm going to retire. And then at 70, I'm going to travel the world. And Bill's just honest about where's your mobility at that point, right? Like, are you in a wheelchair? Can you get up and downstairs? Can you lift your carry-on luggage over your head? Probably not. So why are we doing that? And so it's really thinking about your life and tranching it out into decade periods of what you'd like. And right now, you know, I'm in, I'm 44 years old. Um, you know, I optimize for experiences. You know, I'm, I'm just on that cusp of, you know, last uh, few years of Gen X, right at the beginning of the millennial generation. So maybe I'm just part of that cohort and I don't have any uh, free will of my own, but I optimize for experiences now. Later in life, I, I think often about, you know, maybe if I'm less mobile, I might get into like theoretical physics. I don't know what I'm going to do, but maybe then I can at least have a, a pencil and paper and I can sketch out some theoretical physics or anything, but I think shutting down my brain to, to navel gaze for the rest of my life is pretty unlikely. By the way, I have the book right here. It's nice. called, yeah, Die With Zero. And I should hit you up after because I have a big problem with getting through books. I start a lot of books and then I fall off. So maybe we can talk about that offline, but um, that's great that you're doing that much reading because that's impressive to me for sure. No, you should, you were, you're, you're probably the smarter one in that sense because like I, I know a lot of people that do that, I can't. I have like this weird respect for books. So, like almost when I started, I had to finish them. I rarely mm -hmm. uh, don't finish a book, even though it's probably the more, more optimal way. I also don't like dog ear or take notes in books because I feel like this immense amount of respect. I don't know why, but uh, no, you have, you have the better outcome, I think over time. Have you followed Peter, Peter Atiyah at all? Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, that, that, that thing you were talking about of being functional like later in life was like, I actually just got, just if we're showing books, I might as well show mine too. <laughs> I don't know when I'm going to read this because it's like 500 pages, but I, I just got his book on like, you know, his whole idea of health span and, you know, continuing yes. to, to live as long as you can, but also continuing to be functional. 
Um, you know, that's something I'm thinking about a lot. Like, what could I be doing now that I can be lifting my grandkids when I'm 85 years old or whatever? Um, so I thought that was interesting. You know, the other point you brought up that I thought was interesting is Justin, if we had anybody, I don't think we've had anybody on the podcast who said they're going to retire. Um, to your point about like, yeah, no, I don't think so. Yeah. I think they've um, all basically given this day. I mean, maybe we should drop that question because uh, we're going to get the same answer every time, but yeah, I guess the, the nature of the driven people we tend to have on, you know, they're, they're probably going to do something for the rest of their lives. You know, one yeah, way or even, even for me, like, uh, my relaxation, so to speak is on the weekends. Um, I like to get up, uh, early here on, I'm on the East coast right now, but normally I'm on the West coast. I live in Napa Valley, California, but I love to wake up in bed and watch the English premier league soccer, right? First thing in the morning. And my girlfriend always laughs at me. Cause she's like, you don't actually watch. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like 15 minutes into a game, I'll start doing all the research on who the owner is, how much do they pay for the business? Uh -huh. What does their revenue streams look like? I'm already looking at that. And then coming as a, in my past, I was a commercial real estate developer. I also spend my weekends looking at LoopNet and Zillow. So I don't, I don't if that's retiring or relaxing to some people, maybe I'm just a, a complete lunatic. You, you mentioned your experience as a commercial real estate developer. And in listening to you on other podcasts, I know you have a really interesting story of building like a very successful commercial real estate business and then kind of going through the two, 2008 financial crisis. I'm just wondering if you talk about that and how it's impacted the way you construct your portfolio today. Yeah, the the pain of the GFC, and it's interesting, uh, financial people say it's 2008, real estate people say it's 2007, because that's when it, uh, real estate collapsed before the markets did, um, is I was, I was in my mid-20s, right? And as we've all learned, we've all probably had experience with, those first bouts of success, you tend to think you're a genius, um, and you don't realize that a rising tide lifts all boats, and especially if you have a, a leverage boat, you tend up doing even better. And so, you know, I, I built up a, a commercial real estate development firm in Charleston, South Carolina, developed along that King Street corridor, was really enjoying it. But when the global financial crisis happened and liquidity dries up, it doesn't matter how good you are as an entrepreneur, especially if you're doing any sort of uh, business or real estate where your projection is two to five years out. Like if you're doing value add or you're rehabbing a building and, and you really need the future to look like the present and you need there to be a low volatility environment for your projected P&L to come to fruition. And so I learned through the pain of that experience and that tremendous pain of it's one thing to lose like your business or to, to lose money for yourself. But when you lose money for family and friends, it's absolutely debilitating. And, you know, when I was able to get out of the fetal position on the floor, which probably took a lot longer than I care to admit, um, it made me think really heavily about as entrepreneurs, how do we hedge our global liquidity risk? So it doesn't matter, you know, how good am I am idiosyncratically as an entrepreneur, if global liquidity dries up, it's taken down everybody. So a lot of people told me that it's impossible to kind of hedge that risk. Uh, but that's what I spent the better part of the last 10, 15 years working on is how do you potentially, you know, hedge entrepreneurial risk so you could be a much uh, more aggressive entrepreneur and really lean heavily to your, your idiosyncratic skill set. Yeah, it's interesting how much like these early experiences have an impact on us. Like Justin and I went through we, in like the late 90s in the whole, uh, you know, tech bubble. We, we were involved in building like a precursor what ended up being our current company, but like a tech company. And, you know, we, at, at the time, like, you know, we were getting this VC funding and we were hiring all these people and, you know, we, we were looking at our 1% stake in the company and it was going to be worth these millions of dollars. And then obviously at the end it was worth zero, but I think, I think it's had an impact on us, like the rest of our career in terms of the way we think about risk, um, like going through that experience early. Yeah. It's a really perverse thing, right? Like you just said, like you're, you're looking at your percentage of that company. What's the valuation is, uh, for the kids out there listening, your net worth doesn't really mean anything. It's a piece of paper, right? Like I can't take my net worth statement down to Starbucks and get a coffee with it. They want, you know, fiat currency, my debit card or my phone, whatever, whatever I'm using to pay for that transaction. But what's interesting that it, you really have to wrap your head around is banks love a net worth statement. 
So it's a really weird thing. Like you can go to a bank and get millions of dollars in commercial real estate loans off a net worth statement, yet your local coffee shop won't take your net worth statement. So you have to be really careful, you know, how much that net worth statement can fluctuate. And that's not true wealth or your valuation. I'm sure we'll get into it. It's like, even when we're talking about my personal portfolio, obviously most of my net worth is going to be tied up in my business, but I don't count that as as my net worth. You know, that makes a lot of sense. Before we talk about your portfolio, I just want to talk about the 60-40 really quick because, you know, a lot of our listeners will be in something similar to that. You know, yeah. a lot of sort of finance people will say that's sort of the base and you start with the 60-40 portfolio and then if you're going to make changes, you kind of come from there. But but you have a really different take on this whole thing. So I'm just wondering if you could talk about why the 60-40 portfolio might be flawed. Sure. We, we start at a very high level as we look at the world as either offensive or defensive assets. You know, if we want to get a little more sophisticated, you know, assets are either short volatility or long volatility. As I talked about as a commercial real estate developer, you need a short, you need a a volatility flat environment to do well. And if volatility picks up, you might be in trouble. So when you're looking at stocks and bonds, um, we view those as offensive assets. And what we mean by that is, you know, they're all kind of long GDP. As long as credit is a wash and times are liquid, um, they're going to do just fine. Um, And that's why historically people have done incredibly well off 60-40 for the last 30 to 40 years. But the second part of that is correlations. And they did so well because they were negatively correlated. As we were, you know, coming down from, you know, double digit uh, bond returns down to zero, um, you had this nice negative correlation between uh, equities and bonds over the last four decades. What's been interesting is if you zoom out a little bit over, you know, a hundred year time horizon, stocks and bonds are actually correlated more times than than when they're uncorrelated. Usually um, tends to coincide with a uh, inflationary environment. But that's, you know, what I always try to look for is like, what is the disconfirming evidence, you know? And so just because it's worked for the last three to four decades, it doesn't mean for the next three, four decades of my time horizon is going to work. So those those sorts of things make me nervous. And so to us, it's just a, they're tools in a portfolio, but they're just a few tools in the portfolio. Like I always like to make fun of my my stock friends is like, to me, they're like in M. Night Shyamalan's The Village, right? They think the whole stock universe is the entire universe, but it's just a small village in a, in a great global world out there. Yeah, to your point, we have trouble talking to investors about it because, you know, when you go through a 40-year period like this where stocks and bonds work, like it's very hard to get people separated from that until they go through a period like we're going through now where maybe you see, you know, the other side of that. Like when you haven't seen that in 40 years, it's very hard for people to wrap their arms around it. Yeah. It's, it's everybody, and you know, I'm, I, I don't want to hate on the boomers, but it's just the luckiest generation in, in world history. It just really is amazing. Um, but like you said, to get people you know, off that thinking is, is, is hard to do. And I think even on your, on your podcast, Wes talked about like had close to a short ratio of two over some of that time horizon. So th- that was the best hedge fund in the world you know, in history. So it's hard for people to really get off that thinking. And as other people have stated, and you guys know all too well, it's like you're really just reducing the, the variance or volatility of your equity portfolio. You're not doing a whole lot with the bond side of that 60-40. Your website, when you sort of step from the 60-40 towards what you've built, you talk a little bit about the permanent portfolio and this idea of stability through volatility. So I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the permanent portfolio and how that sort of improves on like a 60-40 type approach. Sure. So in the early 1970s, Harry Brown came up with what they called the permanent portfolio. And the idea was he also came up with a four-quadrant model. And the you're always going to be on the axes of growth or inflation, right? You're either going to be in growth or recession, inflation or deflation, and that creates your four quadrants. Now, Ray Dalio kind of copied Harry Brown's four quadrant model, didn't give him credit, and just levered up the bond side and called it risk parity. Uh, but it actually comes from way earlier than the 90s for Dalio. It comes from the 70s from, from Harry Brown. And the idea, Harry Brown had four quadrants. He had stocks, bonds, cash, and gold. And the idea was during growth environments, you want stocks. During deflation or disinflationary environments, you want bonds. You want that income stream. Um, during a recession, you want cash, 
And during an inflationary period, you want gold. Now, this is the early 1970s, and the portfolio did incredibly well during the 70s because that gold proponent. And the idea was they're also equally weighted. So unlike uh, Ray Dalio's uh, risk parity, he didn't leverage up the bond side. It was just a quarter each stocks, bonds, cash, gold. And the idea was you just muddle along in kind of any global macro environment. But more importantly, you would reduce that volatility tax or drawdown that kills most investors because you'd have a very boring portfolio. Now, that was the 1970s. We just viewed there's a lot better tools today that you can use. And so we've kind of really diversified and used ensembles within that kind of rubric of the, of the permanent portfolio. Yeah, to pick up on that idea, when, when you built the cockroach portfolio, you talked about, I believe it was like three major flaws of the permanent portfolio that you were trying to correct. You know, can you talk about what those are? Yeah, I'll start with, you know, Dalio tends to say, like, you can have 16 uncorrelated return streams. <laughs> That's just categorically untrue. There's really only three correlations, right? There's correlated to stocks, there's uncorrelated, negatively correlated. And correlated stocks is what we're talking about with stocks and bonds is, you know, when people say correlations go to one, that's in a liquidity event. You know, when March 2020 happens, all of your assets sell off at once. And that's why we call them all offensive assets. Typically, when your financial advisor or your portfolio, whoever constructs your portfolio for you, will show you this pie chart of this broad diversification. But when we try to show people that pie chart, it's usually 99 to 100% in offensive assets. And in a March 2020 scenario, they're all going down together. So right there, that's your problem is most asset classes are, like I said, long GDP, short volatility, or they're correlated to stocks. They're offensive assets. So that's part of the correlations. The, the uncorrelated portfolio that you typically have is the commodity trend advisors. So trend following on, on the universe of commodities is, by, the, by definition of the strategy, it tends to be uncorrelated, which can be you know, positively correlated, negatively correlated, you know, half and half. And then you have structural negative correlations that you can get with long volatility and tail risk products, right? If I buy a put on the S&P 500, that gives me a structurally negatively correlated uh, product to the S&P 500. So one, people aren't thinking about their correlations. So at a gross level, we try to think about, you know, we have half for offensive assets, half for defensive assets. We think about the three correlations. We think then we overlay that four quadrant model. And then part of the four quadrant model that we think if Harry Brown were alive today Instead of cash, cash is pretty inert, right? Which is great. You know, cash did really well in, you know, 2020, 2022. But the idea is, you know, in a more financialized universe, you know, that drawdown can be so severe on stocks. We like to balance that out with long volatility tail risk. To us, it's more like a convex cash position that really helps offset that linear position of stocks. And then bonds, like we said, is a linear position for a deflationary or disinflationary environment. We like to offset those with our commodity trend advisors just by the structure of the way they, they create the trade. It ends up being a convex trade as well. So you're offsetting that linear position with convexity as well. So, so the goal here is basically to create the most consistent portfolio you can, right? That limits drawdowns as much as possible. Yeah, I think one of the fallacies of, of the world we all live in is this idea of like sharp ratio and volatility as a measure of risk. First of all, volatility is a measure of variance, uh, so the upside and downside. So one, that's not necessarily a great risk metric because everybody loves variance to the upside. They hate variance to the downside. Um, but what we care about most is what I call MAR ratio. And, and MAR ratio is your, your compounded return over the long term divided by your max drawdown. Now, there's a couple of issues with that. It's one of the measures that can't be gamed the most. Like you could game your volatility and your sharp ratio and still have massive drawdowns. So people don't really look at the drawdowns, they're looking at volatility. And a lot of times when you attenuate your portfolio to variance or volatility, you might have larger drawdowns. So we really try to focus on that sharp stick of our back at drawdowns. It's that volatility tax um, that really, really hurts a portfolio. But the hard part is when you attenuate your portfolio to drawdowns and MAR ratio is like your largest drawdown is always ahead of you. That's just volatility in the arrow of time. 
And so you can never know for certain how good your MAR ratio is because four decades from now, I might have my worst drawdown. And that, that scares the shit out of me at all times. Yeah, that, I would think that MAR ratio would be interesting like for retirement planning, you know, because, you know, sequence risk is such a big issue for retirement. Like one of the things we've learned kind of running retirement portfolios is that max drawdown is, is a huge issue. You get that max drawdown at the wrong time when you're pulling out money. It's a it's a kind of a catastrophe for a retirement plan. So uh, that ratio, I hadn't heard of that before. That, that's really interesting. I think it would work well, like for retirement planning as well. Yeah, you nailed it because the you know, facet, the, you know, we used, like you just said, we used to call it sequencing risk. Now everybody calls it ergodicity and non-ergodic environment. So we have all these fancier words. But what it really means, like you're saying, is like your individual sequence is going to be different from the average of every American's or, or global sequence. At over, you know, when we look at the stock chart that goes up and to the right over 100 years, you go, great, it's up and to the right. That's all I want. But then you look at those intervening periods when the stock market's underwater or 60-40 is underwater. Um, and you don't know when that's going to align with your actual lifespan. You know, we're talking about health span and the lifespan is like, what happens if, you know, that happens during your prime earning years? More importantly, what if that happens to retirements when you have to be, you know, taking, you know, withdrawing money from your account? People don't really account for that because they're just looking at the average across all Americans over 100 years. And that sequencing risk can really kill you. So we try to reduce that that um, dependence on your sequencing or as, as a lot of people, I actually call it getting lucky. Most people's portfolios are built for getting lucky, whether it's stocks, stocks and bonds. You're just hoping you get lucky. We're trying to reduce that luck by reducing the volatility tax. If you can kind of truncate that left tail with reducing your drawdown and you have that four quadrant model, then you can kind of muddle along whatever environment we're in and not be too worried about what's going to come across uh, in the global macro environment. Like, for example, before we even started Mutiny Funds, actually, the working title that my partner and I were using before we launched our product was called Ataraxia. And that comes from the ancient Greek for unperturbed by external events. I want a portfolio that when I wake up in the morning and I find out like we invaded Ukraine or SVB has failed, I know my portfolio is doing just fine. The problem is that most people have is during a, you know, a bull market in stocks or a bull market in 60-40, your neighbor's going to be outperforming you. And for most people, that, that just destroys them. I, I read that ataraxia word on your site. And so not only did I have to Google it, but I had to do the Google pronounce it for <laughs> yeah. me. Um, which I, and then I, and then I read, you know, you changed the name of the company because no one could spell it. No one could pronounce it. Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, I want to ask is a mar, let me ask you this is a mar ratio of one or greater. I mean, it, 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 is it feasible? Is that, a, or is that kind of unheard of? Cause just so the audience knows, it's like, I think Jason said, it's a compound, the long-term compounded annualized return over the max drawdown. So I'm just thinking if, if a strategy had a return of 8%, you know, over a 10 year period, but only had a max 8% drawdown, that would be a MAR ratio of one. Do I have that formula right? Yeah, you're nailing it. And as um, Corey brought up on your show is the, you know, when we look at like efficient frontiers and everything, that was part of it is like, you're trying to create the most uh, robust, efficient frontier and then use a bit of leverage. And for some people, people have gotten away from the leverage, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, but you're right, it's exceedingly difficult. So it's a weird thing. I try to, uh, I try to pick, I guess, esoteric uh, goals for myself and, and try to compete in this blue ocean of competing on Mar ratio when nobody else is. But the part of it too is like, I've been researching for decades and I'm not sure there's more of a handful of people that have been in business for more than two decades that had a Mar ratio of one. Um, I believe if you look at uh, Ed Thorpe's uh, track record over 15 years, he was, a, he was a little bit over one. So he did a great job, you know, when he was figuring out um, all of the options market before, you know, people had really figured out even Black Scholes formula, like he had, you know, he was creating all those stub portfolios and he did a tremendous job. I think people would argue that Rentech has probably had a MAR ratio over one. The problem is I've never seen fully published daily drawdowns for Rentech. I mean, they, you know, a lot of people say you, they've compounded, you know, 60, 70 percent. 
Um, I know there's a one-week period where they're down at least 30, so I don't know how bad it got intraday or how bad it's gotten since then. But you'll, if you search kind of the universe, you'll find very, very few funds that or managers that have been around for two decades plus that have a MAR ratio greater than one. But I'm also, I'm honestly, to be completely transparent, fair. I'm getting rid of like HFT firms or market makers. You know, like they have a they have a un, un, unique advantage that maybe the rest of us don't have. I want to dig into each of the four quadrants here. You know, we've got the four quadrants: stocks, volatility, income, and trend. And I want to start with stocks because that, that's an interesting thing we talk about in these a lot. Um, you know, you've got two sides of the whole international diversification argument. You've got the Jack Bogle side. You know, you just need the U.S which it turned out was also the Corey Hofstein side. Um, yeah. We had him on. You're getting your, your international exposure through U.S. companies. Um, and then you've got the other side, which is sort of the, you know, if you actually look at the data and look at correlations and stuff, you know, there is there's certainly benefits to international diversification. And I'm wondering just how you thought about, like, creating the stocks quadrant. Yeah, what you're, I think you're going to find is me uh, backpedaling into uh, agnostic, you know, stances on this. Like, so I actually agree uh, with Bogle, agree with Corey, and agree with Meb when, you know, he prefers international as well. Um, but like Corey said, I think that a lot of S&P 500 companies, you know, have tremendous, you know, international exposure and it's really hard to parse that out. And more importantly, um, you know, people that invest in ETFs, almost nobody does due diligence is the way I think about life. And they don't really even dig into their ETF portfolios to even know what they have. So I don't think anybody really has a clue. The other thing is like even on the individual companies, um, you know, whenever we have people that go, well, I don't understand what you guys do in volatility. I go, tell me what you do understand. They're like, I understand stocks. And I, I send him a, a paper that my partner, Taylor Pearson, did called Reality Has a Surprising Amount of Detail. And in that, he asked you to draw a can opener. And, you know, that's like the simple, sim, most simple mechanical tool there is. And almost nobody can draw a can opener. And the, the thesis he gets to is reality has a surprising amount of detail. When people tell me about stocks, I go, tell me about your favorite. They're like, oh, Amazon's my favorite. I go, OK, tell me more about like AWS side. They're like, oh, no, I'm more on the e-com side. And I'm like, well, that doesn't count. And then I go, tell me who their CFO is. And nobody, you know, crickets, nobody has an idea. So one, that, sorry, that diatribe was, you know, if you're buying ETFs or you're buying stocks, um, I'm not sure anybody really knows or spends the time to really dig into what they're actually buying. But the way we look at the stock portfolio is uh, we replicate using the stock index futures, basically MSCI Acqui. So we're using a global portfolio. Right now, it's, it's about 60% US, um, 20% uh, foreign, and 20% emerging markets. Now, is that giving you that broad exposure that you couldn't get on the US side, that's debatable. The other side that, that Corey brought up on your guys' podcast is you're also getting a currency play. So in, a, in effect, and not only am I hold, trying to hold you know, all the world's stock indices, I'm also getting a kind of buy and hold currency play that I'm rebalancing as well. Um, and we, we're rebalancing between those on a monthly basis, and I'm sure we can get into rebalancing more. But the, the same thing that uh, Med Faber has historically said as well is like, we're just trying to hold all the world's liquid asset classes and rebalance. So that's part of why we believe in maybe just, you know, venturing beyond the S&P 500 in, into the foreign and emerging. By the way, there is zero chance I could draw a can opener. Um, <laughs> I was just thinking what it would look like. And yeah, I'm like, yeah, how yeah. would I draw it? I mean, I don't even know what it looks like. <laughs> Everybody thinks they can until they do. Yeah. Um, how about the income side? You know, one of the interesting things, you know, you've got, it seems like you've got a broad, you know, group of bonds in here, but one of the interesting things you have is this ensemble carry strategy. So you've, you've got something a little bit outside of the norm there. Can you, can you talk about how you think about building that whole income side? Yeah. So what people maybe don't realize for the bond side when they're thinking about 60, 40 portfolios 
is we really we kind of renamed our bond portfolio our income portfolio because the idea is in a disinflationary or deflation environment you really want those steady income streams so that's kind of how we view that portfolio so similarly to the stock side we use global bonds as well but we're using the the futures uh so we're able to trade those markets around the world just using the futures and the kind of the total return which is a bit different i guess than a lot of people um buy or hold or trade bonds um, but as you said, we, we broaden out that, that bucket a little bit to think about other income streams. And um, we partner with our, our buddies at Resolve Asset Management, uh, where we do a, a carry strategy over you know, a multitude of asset classes, not just FX like it was, you know, currencies like it was historically done. Because if you build out that properly, it, it should provide you an income stream as well via that pairs trade or, or actually you're really just kind of monitoring the roll yield, whether you're in contango or backwardation. But the idea is we want to diversify as many income streams we can in that bond and income stream bucket. Um, because once again, we believe in ensembles and diversification because like I said, we're trying to narrow that band of drawdown or volatility tax across the portfolio. How about uh, your long volatility? That, that interested me a lot because that's something that I would think would have to be the most thoughtful you'd have to be to construct that. You know, obviously the, the stuff that's publicly available for people to invest in long volatility, the ETFs and stuff are just a train wreck. Um, you know, and you, you're obviously going and getting professional managers to do this, but like, how do you think about building, you know, a volatility portfolio? So that's what we got known for. So we debated for a long time before we launched our, our long volatility fund is if we were going to launch our long volatility fund first or a cockroach fund, which is our total portfolio solution that includes the long volatility fund. And we just felt like that was the thing that people didn't have access to. So my partner and I got together around 2018. Uh, we met online. We were working on some other projects uh, in the crypto space. And, you know, we found out we both had this love for volatility. So we started talking about it and we started talking about all the different path dependencies to volatility. But more importantly, we started talking about, you know, family and friends read a Nassim Taleb book, a Chris Cole white paper, a Mart Spitznagel book or whatever. And they go, oh, these are amazing. How do I hedge my portfolio? And what they don't know is many of these strategies require $100 million minimum assets under management for you to have access to them. And so we figured we're, we're pretty good entrepreneurs. There has to be a way to figure this out. And so what we figured out is with the path dependencies, with the access points and everything, is if we could build an ensemble to long volatility and tail risk, we could provide almost a beta-like signal um, to the long volatility space that would be great for investors to access to. And so we, right now we're up to 14 long volatility managers, and we allow access points starting at, at $100,000 US for accredited retail investors. And so a product like that has never been built before. And so we we're really happy to bring that to market. But like while we're talking about this overarching philo uh, philosophy we have of the total portfolio solution with Cockroach or permanent portfolio is it's just a cornerstone piece in that. And this is why, you know, this is where I accidentally became kind of the nexus of the vol space because we track 30 to 40 managers. We allocate to 14. So I actually know the space pretty much better than anybody on the planet. So I'm constantly talking to institutions, pensions about what the different strategies are, what the different path dependencies are, you know, how to build this in a portfolio, what how to allocate to it, all those sorts of things. It's a it's a very unique space. And um, like I like to say is like, this is the last passion of active management. You get what you pay for in this space. You know, or if you're talking about stocks and bonds, anybody can hit that buy and sell button for you. But uh, volatility, vol surfaces, and really um, paying attention to those markets is exceedingly difficult. Yeah, I would assume just, just looking at this, I don't know a lot about long vol, but I would assume there's probably like a lot of dispersion in any given decline among these managers. Is it, would that be accurate? <laughs> yeah, so to give you an idea how bad that dispersion is, in 2022, our dispersion was upwards of 50 to 60% across our managers. Because the, and this wow. is why we believe in the ensemble approach and the path dependencies is because you never know what a priori what kind of a market environment you're going to be in. So in March of 2020, to give you an example, tail risk funds did incredibly well. 
as they have done historically. And it's like, let's say you buy a put negative 20% down in the S&P 500, and that's your attachment point. You know, you pay just like insurance, you pay a little bit of premium for that. But then as soon as you get down that attachment point, you have this convex position that's then covering your losses beyond that. And so if you're coming from a low volatility environment, like we saw in 2017, 2019, you know, the cost of that protection is getting low. It's maybe two to 3% to get that negative 20% attachment point. So when March 2020 um, happens and you have that quick sell-off, those tail risk funds explode in value. And that really provides an unbelievable coverage for your portfolio in that scenario. Now, the problem is then if you get to like a 2022 scenario, when you have a more protracted drawdown, um, which means you're not going to really see that that same pop in implied volatility like we saw in March of 2020, um, you need some different strategies that are going to manage that dependency. You need to maybe more long gamma strategies that are maybe at the money, restriking often, or you need you know delta strategies that are just short those delta on those market indices. Um, and then it tends, you know, CTAs tend to do a lot better in those environments like 2022 or, or 2008. So it, it's really about layering in the different path dependencies and kind of what can happen across that space. And w- yeah. when you say path dependencies, I, I mean, is that basically, is it really another, if I say like the return characteristics or the return profile of a certain strategy, is is that what yeah. a path dependency Yeah, to give you like some means, to give you better examples okay. maybe is... um. It really depends on are we coming from a low vol environment to a, a high vol environment, right? And then what are my monetization heuristics if it pops into that high vol environment, if volatility sometimes mean reverts just as quickly? Or like we saw in 2022, that path dependency, like it says, that slow drip down. And to give you an idea, like the VIX index is not a fear index, by the way, it's just a variance index. So people get too hung up on that. But a good rule of thumb for the VIX index is the rule of 16. So the VIX index is at 32. That means the implied volatility is expecting, if you divide by 16, 2% moves up or down in a single day. So if we're at a VIX of 32 and the market's slowly dripping down 1% a day, you're not going to see that pop in implied volatility. So that's a very different path dependency to having a tail risk position that's waiting for that pop in implied volatility. So it's like, are we at low vol? Did we shift to high vol? Were we at medium vol going into this? It's like, where did we come from? Where are we going to? What are my monetization heuristics? How do I roll those positions? So there's just a lot of different ways of playing uh, long volatility, tail risk, long gamma positions, short delta, whatever you want to call it. There's many different ways of skinning the cat. And the weird thing is, I think for a lot of people that come from outside of our space, is this part of the world is very built on niche strategies. So you have a manager that's very something very specific niche strategy on one very specific path dependency, and they do that because institutional allocators are looking to build ensemble portfolios the way I do. And so they really want you to stick to your knitting, do one very specific thing, and then they're the ones that choose your allocation size, and they think about the emergent uh, properties of the rest of the portfolio. So it's a very uh, unique thing to be in our position where we're just trying to bring institutional quality portfolios down to the retail level. And part of that is knowing and understanding the specific path dependency those cover, those managers cover, and then looking for other managers that may overlay or overlap into different path dependencies. You had mentioned uh, rebalancing before, and after, when you were talking about volatility, that made me think about that because that must be a challenge, you know, from a rebalancing standpoint. You know, you've got something like 2020. I assume that volatility quadrant is blowing up, you know, and you have to think about how to rebalance as that's going on during the event. Like, h- how do you think about rebalancing between? So, all going back things? to Harry Brown's rebalancing um, philosophy, was he used rebalancing bands? So he was 25% each in each of his buckets, but if any bucket went up or down 10%, he would rebalance. And so if, uh, if Bucket went from 25 to 35 or down to 15, that's when he'd rebalance. And what that has worked out to historically, he was rebalancing like every 1.6 years. Now, personally, I love rebalancing bands. It gives you a better heuristic because a lot of times you can get caught up in chop and, you know, 
you know, rebalancing costs, et cetera. Um, and you don't know, you know, rebalance is essentially a mean reversion strategy. I mean, it's helping you monetize a little bit of the trend, but when markets are trending, you know, rebalancing is not a, necessarily a great strategy. So a lot of people look at like daily versus weekly versus monthly versus quarterly versus annual rebalancing. And a lot of times you'll, you'll have different ideas, right? You should actually be trending in different time horizons versus rebalancing in different time horizons. And by the time somebody comes up with an academic study, I'm sure that that, that sign will flip around. But the way we have to do it in practice is we rebalance on a monthly basis. So we offer the unique proposition that we offer our clients monthly liquidity because we get SMAs with our managers, meaning we get to see their trading in real time when we have daily liquidity, which allows us at the portfolio level to offer monthly liquidity to our clients. So if we have inflows and outflows on a monthly basis, we're basically forced to rebalance monthly. Even though I, I may prefer quarterly or rebalancing bands, it's a function of you know regulatory and compliance and just the structure of our portfolio that we rebalance between the four quadrants on a monthly basis. But we also don't attenuate the portfolio to our global macro view. Like we don't own a crystal ball. I retired from the crystal ball game. I can't predict the future. And so we keep those fixed weight across the buckets, but then we rebalance between the buckets on a monthly basis. Moving to the the final one, the trend one, you know, what, what struck me about that is it, it seems like you're doing, you know, uh, you're doing an ensemble across a bunch of different timeframes. Again, going back to, you know, we've this, this topic of ensemble has come up a lot. But how are you think about do, thinking about doing that? Are you using just different managers that operate on different timeframes? So time I think frames? it was even on your pod, uh, Wes Gray was talking about, uh, it's re you can't stuff these into an Act 40 fund. I've never seen anybody where they have to go like long only and rebalance. It doesn't work. You're tying their hands behind their back. Well, their full game is to go long and short. They use a little bit of implicit leverage. You know, it's hard to get access. Once again, these CTAs, usually the minimum from our managers is about $5 million is their minimum allocation, right? And so historically, if you really look across CTAs, they also have a large dispersion as well. Um, any given year, you know, you can look at, you know, 20 points of dispersion to 30 points of dispersion. And people are like, they're always asking, like, what's the best CTA? And I'm like, that's a terrible question. You know, the last one that's the best the last two years might be the worst the next two years. I mean, you guys have seen this against, you know, stocks, portfolios or even factor portfolios a million times. And so the way we think about that bucket is we tranche them out by time horizon first. So it's short, medium, long term. And that means, you know, their lookbacks are either, you know, short, medium, long term, and then their trade horizons are short, medium, long term. And those are the kind of three time horizons we put them into. And then within those time horizons, you can then start looking at little idiosyncratic ways they may trade, whether it's breakouts, moving averages, do they volatility target the position after it's open? You know, you have to understand kind of the different ways that you can kind of play commodity trend. But also we look at, try to find managers that are still running at least 40% commodities. Um, that's really actually hard to find because over the last decade, as, as CTAs kind of fell out of favor, a lot of them started, one, attenuating a lower volatility, because that's what the institutional allocators wanted, uh, which reduces your capital efficiency. But two, they started only trading in financials because they started to do an AUM game. And the larger AUM they, they started to manage, the less they could be in these uh, smaller commodity markets. So we try to find managers that are still trading you know, uh, a good solid you know, half of their portfolio in commodities, um, because that's what you're really looking for in that inflationary environment. And as uh, Dan Rasmussen and his team at Verdad have shown is like, allegedly, you know, CTAs have a higher beta to inflation than, than gold would, which is why we looked at that, that bucket too. Yeah, so much of this seems to be about like not, you know, not making bets you don't have to make, you know, or not taking risks you don't have to take. Like, was it Corey who called it like diversifying your diversifiers? Yeah, I think Corey... That. I Corey said, I, was, I, I, I hate playing this game because it's like turtles all the way down. It's like, who said it first? And I would say Veneer Bansali said it first. Corey would say he said it first. You know, Corey says uh, risk can't, what is his, it can't be destroyed. It can only be transformed. But then like 
but then Chris Cole, yeah, yeah transmuted. And Co- or Chris Cole said something or, very similar. Right, yeah. But then Corey and I started doing a, a historical representation. We found it in papers in like the '90s and the '80s. So it's like, yeah, it's just like even the permanent portfolio, right? I said with uh, uh, Harry Brown, it's like you can go all the way back to the Talmud, you know, for proper portfolio diversification. So it's like, where do we start? Where do we begin? I don't know. So just one other thing I want to ask you about this chart, like in the, in the middle, you've got a circle with crypto and gold. So I'm wondering if you could just talk about how, how you think about crypto and gold. When I said Harry Brown, you know, used that inflation environment, he used just gold. And like we said, I think if he had the modern tools of like CTA trend followers and using the ensemble approach, we view, we we hope that gives us a higher beta to inflation. And it gives us uh, a lot more broad coverage, hopefully, to an inflationary environment. So the idea is then what are gold and cryptocurrencies? Now, I don't know about you guys, but I've been studying gold for decades. I still don't know, have an idea what it is. I just know people love it. And it has that like... To the Taleb quote, it has Lindy effects, right? It's been around thousands of years. And the idea is that you can maintain your purchase power parity. But what people don't tell you is that's only over really decades or centuries, right? Like they go, well, uh, for a night, they could buy, you know, a, a suit of armor for the same price maybe you pay for a bespoke suit on Savile Row in London these days. And I go, yeah, but that, that only really works over decades or, or, or centuries long time horizon. Like, for example, in uh, March of 2020, gold got got sold off with everything else because everybody's trying to raise cash, right? The baby got thrown out with the bathwater. So even though we think over a long time or longer time horizons, gold should help you maintain that purchase power parity. Um, and similarly, that would be the original argument for like Bitcoin, et cetera. And so we look at those as more like fiat hedges. Um, you know, we have this liquid portfolio of our four quadrant model. Um, but we overlay a little just 20% exposure to gold and cryptos, and it's 16% gold, um, about 5% of which we actually have in physical gold storage, um, and then 4% in cryptos, and we use the futures for that, and it's about 2.5% Bitcoin, 1.5% Ethereum. They're just market cap weighted. And the idea there is like, you know, we're trying to uh, build portfolios for people to manage, you know, multi-generational wealth, ho- hopefully, and like we said, maintain their savings when they, for when they need it most. So if you had those like, kind of mildly cataclysmic events like war, diaspora, or the market shut down like they did in 9-11. Um, that's why we hold those. And hopefully that maintains some of our purchase power. Now, do I know that that's the right allocation percentage? I have no idea. But like what happens to gold and physical gold if the market shut down? You know, what is, what's the exponential return on that? Sim- similarly with Bitcoin, what if those Bitcoin maxis are right? What's the exponential return if, you know, things that they believe will come to fruition? I don't know if they will. But it's more about we're reducing our ignorance. And like I said, we're just trying to not get lucky. We're just trying to have the least shitty portfolio. And I'm just trying to hold all the world's asset classes that I can. I wonder, have you looked at all at uh, holding crypto with trend? Yeah, we. so there's a couple of things on that. Um, When people say the institutions are coming into crypto, they don't know what they're talking about. Because like, for example, we were working with a financial advisor uh, on the Schwab platform that wanted to allocate to our funds. And they had just... uh, an NLP program that software that went through there and they saw if it sees crypto or cannabis, it just kicks your fund out in the PPM. And so we had crypto in there. So it just kicked our fund out, but we trade the futures, right? Which is completely legal. And you could trade the futures on Schwab's platform, but it took us six to nine months just to work up the chain to get that approval. So one, I don't think they're coming. So to your point is like, ideally we would have cold storage wallets. We would have active managers. I mean, we've probably talked to 40, 30 to 40 crypto funds in the last year and a half. We know everybody in the space. Like we always are, we're constantly like trying to build out what our ensemble portfolio would be for that. Um, but it just doesn't exist in a way that we can offer it to our clients. But I keep, I actually keep pushing our managers. If somebody would just create a trend following on crypto futures fund, that then we can cross margin and with a capital efficient way, I think that would do exceedingly well, at least within the managed future space. One of the things is you've kind of built the strategy that you believe in um, and, you know, you're running money through it. But 
it's it's through a hedge fund like vehicle. So it's really only for accredited investors that can invest in this. So I'm curious, you know, and most of our audience probably isn't wouldn't meet those those minimums and be able to invest in a fund like yours. Um, but you know, are there other ways that someone could kind of try to get at some of this with the vehicles that are out there in the market? A couple of things on that. One, as a uh, compliance and regulations, I can't recommend anybody else's portfolios, unfortunately. Uh, I've learned that one the hard way. Um, but we built what we did because it, we, this is exactly what we wanted that didn't exist. And what was interesting is actually we built what we did because my partner and I didn't have the wealth to access what we built. And so we knew in aggregate, if we get other people involved that like what we did, then we could get our own access to it. Because otherwise, like I said, this, uh, to construct a portfolio like this on your own would probably cost $100 million minimum. And so this is why we like building what we build. Um, the problem is, once again, within that ETF, Act 40, all those spaces, is we don't view you can get that proper long volatility, tail risk, and the commodity trend advisors protection that we're looking for. Um, and so that's the issue. Like, I, I really wish we, we've looked at a million ways. I've talked to Wes and his team a million times. Like, I just don't think you can stuff what we do into a, a product for non-accredited investors. And it's really sad. It really pisses me off, to be honest with you. Is there anything else? So you have the cockroach portfolio, but do you have as part of your overall net worth? Is there real estate? Is there any private investments? Is there anything else that you're invested in? I used to, um, both my partner and I started buying Bitcoin in like 2015-ish. And so that's why, like I said, we were originally working on, uh, we got together working on a, um, a stablecoin project. Because honestly, I kind of view what we do as like a stablecoin, right? Like if you hold all the world's asset classes and rebalance, it doesn't matter what the government says is the CPI or inflation rate. It's like, that's the inflation rate. Like, and if you can add a little bit of implicit leverage in that, you can hurdle the inflation rate. And that's what we view your savings should do. It just should be there to be there when you need it most and outpace inflation. You shouldn't try to like get rich off of them. Um, so crypto before we launched the fund, since we launched the fund, like I don't believe in personal accounts because it forces me to build exactly what I want that I can just put all my liquid net worth back into our company. Now, it creates a unique risk for you, right? Like if now my both my partner and I are highly leveraged to our funds as a business, most of our net worth, if we go back to a net worth statement, is tied up in the business. And then we put all of our liquid net worth that we can't put back in the business, we put back into our portfolios because we built what we wanted. Um, so that's what we look at. But to your point is about looking... This is all the world's liquid asset classes, but that's not all the asset classes, right? The private world is much higher than that. And I've uh, you know, passed as a commercial real estate developer. So our version is Cockroach 2.0 is we're going to pair this liquid asset class portfolio with all these illiquid asset classes and these deterministic cash flows. To us, that creates this beautiful symbiotic relationship where because the problem is with like real estate or, or private equity, those venture capital is like you can't put $273,000 to work tomorrow. Right. It's going to take you a long time to get that money to work. And then you might be illiquid for years or a decade. And so if you have this overlay portfolio that we built with Cockroach, that's very liquid portfolio that's trudging along in kind of any macroeconomic environment, that's your access to liquidity. And then when that liquidity dries up, you have that long vol piece that's giving you that convex cash position. So now you can make those uh, margin calls or those dry powder calls on your illiquid investments, or you can buy those at a much lower nab point because cash is much more valuable in that, in that time frame. And now you're sitting on a lot of cash with that liquid portfolio. So once again, as much as I'd want to have those individual items on my own uh, personal balance sheet, we force ourselves to build them uh, for our clients and ourselves at the same time. And that really forces our creativity and ingenuity. And that really pushes me 
much farther faster to just build it because I want access to it. And I'm not going to do it in my PA because if I do, I'll probably get too lazy to build it into our fund. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I like that philosophy. I mean, it, it does. It pushes you to find ways to get these assets, you know, inside the fund so that, you know, you can invest in it, but that your clients can also benefit from that. Stuff. Exactly. Um, I wanted to ask you, so you've obviously looked at probably hundreds of different managers and investment strategies, and you're obviously, you know, a D, you, a, you do deep dives into investment strategies and concepts. So if you were to try to highlight, and this might be, I'm interested in where you're going to go with this. If you went for a retail investor, someone that has some knowledge of the market, but they're not a professional, like if they were doing due diligence on a investment strategy, now there's thousands of investment strategies, but let's just investment strategy in general, like what, what would be the three or four biggest things that you think they should ask or pay attention to? Wow, that's a really tough question. But I'll start with maybe this is a kind of tangent I'll take it on is I find a lot of the universe people really get into investing via like Buffett and Munger, right? And then they all think they're going to be Buffett and Munger until they learn the hard way. And but part of that is like there's a whole other world there are people like me that grew up on the market wizards, which is really the CTA universe. And whether it's retail or anybody, what always surprises me is how little people understand the managed futures universe. And if they truly understood it, this is how people like uh, Corey Hofstein and the team at Resolve with, with their all their crew over there is like, this is how they're able to build those return stacking portfolios is with managed futures because you can get an implicit leverage in there because you're essentially putting up a performance bond and you basically become a drawdown manager. So this is specifically why we built our portfolios in there because that allows you to get a little bit of implicit leverage so you can have these uncorrelated and negatively correlated positions kind of offsetting each other. Like everybody's afraid of leverage, but like that's because they're leveraging up short vol positions. If you can combine short vol and long volatility, you've actually, you know, reduced your risk quite a bit where it's okay to add a little bit of implicit leverage, but you're only going to find that in the kind of the managed future space. When we had Corey's episode, Justin, wasn't it like there was someone in the YouTube comments that was like going after yeah. us basically about the leverage thing. And like, mm -hmm. we're trying to explain, you know, no, if you're putting in uncorrelated assets, leverage is not always bad, but like some people just will not yeah. hear that. Like, you know, leverage is bad in all yeah, cases at all times. There's a couple ways to look at that one. The simple example I give is like, when you're, do, when you're trading managed futures, you have to go up to like your prime and your FCM or your industry broker. And the FCMs and the exchanges are figuring out your margin requirements. And let's just say hypothetically, these numbers aren't accurate, but it gives you directional accurateness. Is if you were long equity beta, they maybe require a margin of 10%, right? And then you want to have a structurally negative correlation with like a, a put strategy. And let's say they acquired a margin of 10%. So you go, okay, 10 plus 10 equals 20%. Except for when you go, you bring those positions to the FCM, they see the offsetting risks and they go, okay, actually your margin is only five to 10% because they see the structural negative correlation there. They know how much less risky that portfolio is. And so that's the part that, that people tend not to miss. And then part of it too is like, Everybody has been, whether it's like I said, coming from this Buffett world or coming from the Bogle world, everybody talks about fees, 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 and leverage, 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 like don't do either. And they miss out on an entire universe because of that. Because if you just shut your brain down, as soon as you hear the word leverage, then you're not thinking. Same, similarly, when you hear fees and you just shut your brain down, you're not thinking either. And so all I care about is what can I eat at the end of the day? And if I have a portfolio that has a little bit of leverage, but offsetting positions, or I have a portfolio that has some maybe fees or fees on fees, but my net return per unit of drawdown is much higher, then that's all I care about because I haven't shut my brain down if, as soon as I hear fees or leverage. When we get to the end of these, we always like to ask a question that gets us to the idea that not everything we do with our portfolios is about making money. 
um, or, or preventing losing money either. Um, like I, I always give the example, like I, I have a racing sailboat. And so like a racing sailboat is a horrible investment, but it's something that I can do with my friends. It's something we can go out and have a beer on a Wednesday night, you know, race around a course and something I get a lot of joy from. So I'm wondering if there's anything like that in your life that you, you know, maybe invest your money in that, you know, it's not maybe giving you a good return, but it's something you really enjoy doing. So I wish I could remember exactly who said this, but uh, my friend David Sender from Founders Podcast was talking about, I think he was with some entrepreneur and they flipped that argument around. And normally people say like yachts, the worst thing to own. And he said, uh, yacht, the yachts were the most accretive to his net worth that he's ever imagined because he was entertaining clients on that yacht or private jets. So he thought yachts and private jets were actually undervalued when the rest of us know, like, feel like they're just a burning of capital, right? Um, I'm kind of with you in the sense that, uh, what's the Felix Dennis quote? If it flies, floats, or fucks, then rent it. Um, I'm kind of in that category. Um, I live a pretty simple lifestyle, but I, before that, I, I didn't tell you guys, I used to own a restaurant group. So I used to own multiple restaurants. So if you want to incinerate your money, um, just go ahead and go into a restaurant. It's one of the most terrible investments you can have. But at the same time, like almost like with your boat, um, life-wise, it was great investment. Like I really enjoy, you know, being around fine dining and, and those sorts of things. So it's really, it's really what, what people really want. Like not everything needs to be accretive to your portfolio or to your net worth. Um, it kind of when I was watching, you know, Wes on you guys, like everybody always talks about like taxes and all those retirement portfolios and all those sorts of things. And it always amazes me when I'm in any of these rooms with high ultra high net worth individuals. That's all they like want to talk about is taxes. And I'm like, how boring. Like you could be using your brain for much more interesting things than taxes. Why are you so worried about taxes? And you don't need to necessarily move to Puerto Rico. There's a lot of other things you can do with real estate. And I think that's what people miss in real estate is real estate's really a tax alpha. It's not a way to get mailbox money. People should get that out of their heads. Um, so to me, it's like, I don't know, do you ever read uh, Ramit Sethi's I'll Teach You to Be Rich? Terrible title, but phenomenal book. And it's really about creating like the technological systems that have your money cascade. So whatever you're left over with is just like fun money. You know, it's your fun tokens. And that's the way I look at it. Like my lifestyle is pretty simple. I waste an enormous amount of money on, uh, on water from like <laughs> on sparkling water, coffee and going out to eat. But I've, I've created my lifestyle in a way that my overhead on like my fixed expenses are so low that then I don't think about what I spend on experiences for their travel or going out to dinner because those are the where I get my joy. And that's what Ramit Sethi's book's about is create all the structures and frameworks and the money cascades so that way you're putting it in the appropriate bucket so everything's taken care of. And then whatever's left over, you shouldn't feel bad about it. No matter how crazy it is, like whatever your passions are, you need to enjoy those too because, you know, at the end of the day, none of us are getting out of this alive. You know, we might as well enjoy the journey. Yeah, one of the things I've learned from him, and you just showed that drink, like he talks about that on Twitter a lot, is like people yeah. worry about stuff like that. You know, people worry about like, you know, am I buying this drink or not? And like the, the things that determine your future are so much bigger than that. You know, have your coffee if you want to have your coffee. Um, it's not going to destroy your financial future. What shocks me is like I, I drink cold brews, right? Nitro cold brews. They're five, six dollars. They're, they're a complete waste of money. But what the person that's always telling me that is somebody that's likely gone through a divorce, right? Divorce, and they've top, chopped their AUM in half. It's like, you don't want to take the time to think about who you got married to, but like, you want to tell me about coffee? That's kind of insane to me. Yeah. Um, thanks so much for your time, Jason. This has been great. We, we like to ask all of our guests one standard closing question. And that is, if you could impart one lesson that you've learned from building your portfolio, building the cockroach portfolio to your average investor, what would that be? It's tough for me. I hate giving advice. Uh, because I don't want, I don't listen to any myself and I, I don't really think I have any. Um, but I always like to watch what people do, not what they say. And that's why I was happy to be on here to talk about what we do, because that's how I view the world. Um, the one piece of advice I give or I would think about is that stop thinking about your savings as investments. 
That's where I think the industry's lied to all of us, is everybody thinks, I'm going to put this money away and I'm going to get rich off of it so then I can retire to a beach somewhere. These are your savings. You need there to be when they need them most and to outpace inflation. As soon as you start thinking about a way to get risk, you're going to take imprudent risks and you're likely going to lose most of them or they can be underwater for decades. So the only way to get rich is in your business, your job, whatever you want to do, but your savings need to be as robust as possible so they'll be there when you need them most. That's great. Thank you very much, Jason. This has been awesome. Thanks, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.